Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, we have a fascinating guest. I sat down with Anu Schultes, CEO of LendUp, a mission-driven fintech company focused on expanding access to credit and creating pathways to better financial health. Anu has had a long career in financial services with a consistent personal mission to lift people out of poverty. You can feel her passion throughout the interview. Anu was just one of the kindest guests we've ever had. Her career spans a broad spectrum of roles across subprime credit cards, subprime loans, and prepaid cards, and her significant experience has led her to become one of the few female CEOs in fintech. And now join me in an awesome interview with Anu Schultes. Well, Anu, thank you for joining us on, on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We are extremely excited to have you here. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your personal background, particularly as uh, you know, I know that you've had a fascinating career with multiple twists and turns. So we would love to understand where you got started and how did you get to the role of CEO of LendUp? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's really exciting. And of course, you know, it's pretty amazing the breadth and reach of your podcast and the people you've had on. So I feel very fortunate to have this opportunity to talk to you, Miguel. My career, yeah, it's fascinating, right? I mean, of course, I don't know how many people plan out their careers and how many of them it works out the way they planned, right? I grew up in India. I have an engineering degree, a computer engineer. Came to the U.S., as most immigrants do, for higher studies, right? So I had a master's in management science. And then just, you know, it's one of those things where this was the early 90s. And as an immigrant, it was actually very few companies would sponsor. I mean, it's pretty common or maybe it's regressing a bit now, but it was much more common 10 years later. But in the 90s, it was not easy if you're an immigrant to get a job because people weren't really willing to sponsor you. So that's how I actually was hired by a company, which became Providian. And it was also, you know, was run by an immigrant. And in fact, that CEO is my advisor now. So got into credit, you know, I'm analytical, I'm a numbers driven person, engineering background. And so I started my career and basically at the time it was called credit analyst, right? Today it's called data scientist. My very first project was building a equivalent to the FICO score for Providian using all of the credit bearer data. So I can now, I would say my initiation into lending was right from my first job. And I spent four years on the credit side. And then I pushed myself into marketing. You know, I talked to my managers and management and said, hey, I really want to branch out. So I did marketing at Providian. And by the time I left, eight and a half years later, I was actually running their front end operations for their largest business. And so I would say, you know, some total, I would say I started in lending. I spent, you know, the first 10, 12 years of my career in lending. I did national city. Uh, I was a Midwestern bank. I did home equity loans for them. Home, I'm sorry, home equity line of credits. And then I had a detour to Home Shopping Network in 2000s. And then 2007, I moved back to California and got into prepaid just by happenstance. But I've spent the last 13 years on that. You know, I spent, uh, been on the product side. 
I was GM of a financial services business for Blackhawk Network, built a billion dollar business with, you know, our own products, white label products and distribution. And, you know, I would say 2007, 2008, I decided that this is the space I want to spend the rest of my career. I mean, it was a fascinating journey. I spent time with customers directly. And I was so shocked to know that so many Americans, right? Tens of millions of Americans don't have access to the basic financial services that we all take for granted. You know, my experience as an immigrant was, yes, I I had a checking account and a savings account. I think it had like $10. I had no credit card, but I assumed it was just an immigrant experience. You know, I didn't actually realize that, you know, day-to-day Americans have the same problem. So my career has two pillars. One is lending. The other one is underserved customer. And so when I got a call from Lenda, this was in 2017, about you know being part of the team to run the loans business, I was ecstatic, right? Because it could not have been a better job for me. I was already a C-level at a startup. We were in the middle of closing Series A, but the Lenda value proposition was so strong for me in terms of what we do for the customer. You know, I had no second thoughts. I kind of jumped in with both feet because for me, a company that's figured out how to make small dollar loans at very large scale to a customer who's deemed too risky by most financial institutions, I could not pass up that opportunity. So that's how I came to Lend Up. I came as GM of loans business. And then 18 months later, I actually took over as CEO. Basically, the business took a different direction. We divested the card business and Lend Up refocused on loans. And so the outgoing CEO said, hey, Anu's been doing a great job on the loans business. And he nominated me, and that's how my journey as CEO began. Sorry for the long Fascinating. answer. No, 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 no. That's better, actually, because we love to get into the details, right? Particularly when it's someone as interesting as you. So you've been on the financial industry and, and fintech, what it was back then probably not even called fintech, for a long time, right? Has the industry evolved in the direction that you would have envisioned? What have been some of the surprises along the way? So, you know, it has been a fascinating journey, right? I mean, the whole term fintech, I don't know when it actually came about. I realized somewhere along the way that I've been doing fintech my whole career, right? Because people would say, oh, you're in fintech. And in the beginning, I'd be like, am I in fintech? But yeah, like right from the beginning, right? Providian was one of the pioneers in the credit card industry. We first tested the 0% teaser and even providing line of credits to high-risk customers was a Providian product. And so... I would say there's both good and bad, right? Just like in any industry. I do think that there's a lot that has evolved, right? Sort of the shift to digital, right? Also, I know there was 10 years ago, they said, you know, cash is going to disappear. Well, that hasn't happened, right? I remember hearing the US treasurer talk at a conference and she said, we're printing more cash than ever before. This was in 2000, I want to say 2013 or 14. So I think there's both, right? One on the other hand, I think there's a lot of innovation, of course, the smartphone changed every industry, right? Banking included. And it's gotten easier to send money. It's gotten cheaper to send money, both US and international. Definitely expanded access to a lot of people. But some things have not changed, which is, you know, we still have 50, 60 million Americans who may have a checking account, but they have no credit card. They have no means for paying for a $200 flat tire, right? they're on the side of the road and they have to call a tow truck unless they carry the cash with them, which who does, right? They're stuck. And so some of that has not changed. I think that the customers were considered risky 
things haven't really reached into them. And I think the regulators are trying and pushing them, you know, towards that. And it's starting to loosen up a little bit. But at the end of the day, there are millions of Americans who do not have $300 in savings, have no credit card. And if you think about a bank, right, if I wanted a $300 loan, I know I qualify, but my bank doesn't even have a product they can give me. Like if I go to the bank teller or to the officer and say, hey, I want a $300 loan, there's no product that exists for that. And so I think that gap still exists. And it is, for me, a pretty compelling product to continue to try to solve for. And that doesn't even touch globally, right? I mean, I've been talking about underserved just in the US, but imagine worldwide there are billions who are in the same place. And so it is, for me, disappointing to see that that problem hasn't been solved, you know, at a scale that I'd like to see. But on the other hand, I do think that access has expanded, ease of use of products has expanded. People who don't want to go to a bank, inside a bank, don't have to go to a bank and all that. Understood. Understood. So let's hear a little bit about LendUp, right? One of your missions is to provide access to credit while also encouraging responsible financial habits, which I found very interesting. So tell us a little bit about some of the achievements of the company to actually improve the lending experience. Yeah, so the company was founded, you know, in 2012 with the singular mission of disrupting, you know, the payday lending industry focused on because a customer who needs, you know, $200, $300 has no other place to go. And, you know, a lot of customers got here by accident, right? I mean, I think people assume that, you know, customers who don't have that much cash or who have bad credit inherently are, you know, somehow different or worse than the rest of us. It's not, right? They just, they made mistakes, like all people do. A lot of them made it when they were young and in college, they have a bad credit score. So they now cannot get any financial instrument for day-to-day financial management, right? And so they have good jobs. Our customers usually make forty dollars to $45,000 a year, which if you imagine that outside of California, that is actually very good income. They just don't have financial instruments. So they end up going to a payday lending store. And so the company was founded on two principles. One is to provide them a very easy to get, you know, online using technology to provide access to small dollar loans. And then built into the product are certain features. Like we do not let customers roll over their loans. You know, typically if you go to a payday lender and you borrow $200 and say you owe 250 back, you come back in two weeks and say, hey, I don't have the 250. Can I, you know, get an extension? The payday lender would be saying, of course, I'm going to help you. I'm going to loan you 250, right? And I'm going to use that for you to pay me back. Now you owe me 310, right? And then it just goes on and on. And so there are customers who only ever borrowed 200, who at the end of a year, year and a half, end up owing, you know, 800, $900,000. And so LendUp was founded with the principle that we want to break that cycle, right? So the way we set it up is, First of all, we make it super easy to apply and it's a dignified process. It's a judgment-free zone. You come in, you apply for a loan, you qualify for it. It's put in your bank account. And then if you want another loan, until you pay back, you cannot have another one. And then if you call and you have the same problem, you you call us back and say, hey, I owe you 250 or 240 because we are cheaper than a typical payday lender, but I just lost my job. Or my shift was lower this you know, the last two weeks, so I'm going to get paid less. Then we say, no problem. 
what is the date you would like to pay us back? And do you want to split it into two payments? And there's no extra fee for that, Miguel. We don't charge them extra for that. If you owe us 240, you still owe us 240. And now you're going to pay us maybe in two installments of 120. And maybe it takes you two additional months to pay us back. Now, until you pay us back, we won't give you another one because we don't want you to stack the loans for you. So that's one principle that we are very strongly committed to. The second piece is helping customers, you know, kind of from here on move to a place of better financial health. How do you do that? You educate them, you teach them, you know, why is credit score important, right? How do you manage? How do you start saving money? How do we improve your credit score? And so we have the concept of a land up ladder where you come in with that, what we call the single payment loan. And then as you stay with us and we learn about you and your payment behavior and, you know, and you build trust with us and we build trust with you, you can qualify for larger amounts, slightly lower rates. Eventually, you can qualify for an installment loan. It's still a small dollar loan, right? We still only do $400 to $1,000. But you can pay over you know, four months, six months, nine months. And so what we find is that we're educating the customer, number one, with really getting them out of what we consider truly products that could get them into a trap. And then the third piece is we are helping them improve you know, over time their financial health, right? Financial health, borrowing is part of it. We want to teach them about savings. I mean, this is our core mission. Our mission is anyone who comes to lend up, we want to get them to better financial health. And that is the core principle that we do for everything we do in our company every day. Fascinating. And I think it's no secret that the payday lending industry has some negative connotations. So it's actually fascinating how you're trying to change that and improve the industry. Have you seen the rest of the industry or other market players also uh, change and move in the right direction? So I think there's been a lot of change and there's been a lot of companies doing a lot of good work, right? I know that I've had competitors approach us and say, hey, we want to use your education courses, right? So there's definitely the intent is there. Um, and then, of course, there's been a lot of innovation on right merchant financing. When you go to buy something for $500, can you just get it financed through the merchant with the lender in the background, right? There are companies that do, you know, $1,000 to $5,000 in loans to the underserved customer. We see that. At the same time, I look around and I look to see who else is doing a $250 loan to someone who has a flat tire or who has a you know, electric bill that they can't pay because the income is, you know, is volatile. 80% of our customers say that their income changes by up to $200 a month, right? So they might have the same full yearly income, but it changes. But they really, there aren't that many products out there. So on the one hand, you know, payday lending as an industry has a bad name. And there's some practices they do that I would like, you know, I would love to see the retailers change that. But at the same time, where does this customer go, right? If you don't have $300 in savings and you have a volatile income, you haven't made any mistakes. You're not out there, you know, buying luxurious things. You're not out there going on vacation, but you have a $200 gap in your income this month and you have a set budget and you have a $200 electric bill or whatever it is, right? A grocery bill. Where does this customer go? And I think that problem is not being solved by many companies. And I think part of it is, it's very hard to lend to someone. Our customers typically are making 45K. Their average score is in the 550, no FICO score, right? You probably know that most banks, if you're under 620, banks don't even want to work with you, right? And then a lot of our competitors and my, I would say peer companies 
are lending to 620 and below, but then we are lending to customers who are 550 average and then giving them starting out with just $200. And so that niche product, I would love for other companies to also do it because I'm, you know, in a state by state licensing model. I'm not in all the states. My personal mission is to expand access. I would love for my competitors to say, hey, let's do this, you know, at a larger scale because this customer is everywhere, not just in the states I'm in, or you know, I shouldn't say me, but lend up. And how big is the company today in terms of employees, clients, and, and that kind of metric? You've probably seen the press release. Like last year, we crossed the threshold of $2 billion in loans since inception. So I would say that, let me do like pre-pandemic, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, we were doing, you know, 300 million or more per year in loans. During the pandemic, we have scaled back a little, but also the demand's been lower. And we can talk more about that. I mean, demand's been lower. And so I would say our steady state's probably around that much. Um, and in terms of our customers, we have inception to date, we have almost a million customers who've taken a loan from us. On an active basis, it's much lower, right? If you do a three-month average, it's much lower. The reality is we have actually made an impact for a lot of customers. And customers actually love us and we love them and they stay with us almost two years. And if they stay that long, we actually we find that we can improve their score by almost 50 points, the Pecoso points. So I imagine one of your challenges, and I'm not sure if you see it as a challenge, is Precisely that, that a client comes to you at a certain point of their credit journey, mm -hmm. and then eventually you risk the fact of them graduating to a different financial institution. Do you see this as a problem? I actually think that's our mission. I want my customers, I want LendUp customers to graduate to mainstream. That's why we were founded, right? For us, like right now, demand is down. I'm happy with that. Yes. You know, is that the right thing for LendUp as a company? I mean, financially, but that's, we are here to serve our customers and get them to better financial health, which means that in the pandemic, the expenses are down, the federal unemployment stimulus has been helping them, and therefore demand is down. That actually makes me happy because there's always more customers we can help. My goal, it's almost like we are a for-profit company, but we function from a, how we approach the customer and that we are here as a socially responsible company to help them get to a better place, which means the more customers I graduate to mainstream financial services, the better we're delivering on our mission. So my goal would be to expand. I would love to see LendUp double the volume, but not by giving more money to the same customers, but by figuring out how to get more customers into the pipeline who need us. And then we can graduate them to mainstream, right? I mean, that would be a great outcome, right? Whether even if it means that partnering with a financial institution and saying, hey, let us be your feeder to get you more customers, but let us help them get to that better place. I would love that. I don't see it as, a, I see it as a challenge is that we are not able to do it fast enough. Standing. So Anu, let's talk a little bit about company culture. That's a topic that we visit basically on every episode. And, you know, I would love to hear from you what kind of company culture you have at LendUp? And also, what's your approach to attracting top talent that fits the culture? Part of it is who I am and what I look like and what I had to go through in my personal journey, right? So for me, creating an inclusive culture is really important. I know this, right now, DNI is sort of a, 
a moment in time where everyone's talking about DNI. But for me, creating a diverse team has always been top of mind in a weird way, right? I'm not constantly thinking I'm going to build a diverse team. What I'm saying is when a candidate walks in the door, to me, whether or not they're diverse doesn't actually enter my thought process, right? So it's about being consciously unbiased. And I'm saying I'm looking for fit to lend up. I'm looking for, first of all, skills and experience. I'm looking for fit to lend up as a culture and a mission. I'm looking for fit with the team because it's not just enough to hire smart, qualified people. You have to create a high-functioning team. And so anytime you have a high-functioning team and you introduce another person, it kind of breaks the circle, and then you have to reform that circle, right? So it's really important that every person we hire is able to fit into the team. And then we focus on, you know, we come up with a set of goals, and then we just execute relentlessly around it. I mean, that's our culture is of execution but then also a very inclusive culture. We actually, my people operations team and I, spend a lot of energies thinking through, you know, are people fundamentally happy with where we are? There's the company goals. Or there's, like when the company is doing well and you're making profit and you are growing gangbusters and you're the talk of the town, yes, it's easy to make employees happy. But what we're going through right now in a pandemic, right? All those things become less important. You know, employees are happy if they feel like they are delivering on a mission. They're in a company they want to be. They're part of something bigger. And that their manager and the management team respects them. And they have opportunities for the future. Like all of those things feed into is an employee happy. And that's what I'm striving to do. Right? That's been something that's been part of how I build and manage teams throughout my career. I mean, you know, I became a manager early on, but significantly as a GM. After 2010, I started to build teams at scale. And that's something that I've paid a lot of attention to because at the end of the day, happy employees will make sure your customers are happy. And I think those are the two pillars I look for is I'm focused on the customer and I'm focused on the employee. And together, then you build value, not just for the customer, but also for investors, right? For everyone. I mean, the shareholders, everybody, all of your Core constituents get value if your customers are happy and your employees are happy and engaged. Sounds like people management is definitely a, a challenge that you think about constantly. Tell us a little bit about some of your other challenges that you encounter on a, on a day-to-day basis. So I think with, you know, being a lender to high-risk customers, right, is a big problem to solve, right? And LendUp has done it at scale, you know, but I kind of mentioned earlier, I constantly think about how can I be in all 50 states, right? How can I expand access to every part of the U.S. with our products? I mean, someday, right, I would like to do it globally. But before I do global, I want to master sort of, you know, the American customers. Like we have so many customers who do not have access that I'm not even able to provide a loan to them because I'm not licensed in the state that they reside in. And so for me, expanding access is very core to delivering on our mission. And that's something that I think a lot about is, you know, how do we expand access? I do look at, you know, other models that are coming out, right? Whether it's a, you know, advance on your paycheck, right? Early wage access, you know, whether it's the subscription model, whether it's, you know, overdraft protection, like you have lots of companies out there now that do all of this. They all are trying to get at the same problem in a different way but still not probably solving to the extent that I'd like to see solved. You could do overdraft protection, but you're not really doing $200, dollars right? You can do early wage access, but you're not solving for the fact that your 
the customer's income is volatile, meaning some months they get $200 less, next month they get the $200 extra, but they have this gap now. So when you do early wage access, you're not solving for that. So I'm constantly thinking about, you know, like I said just now, right? There's the people because I focus on employees. The other thing I really think a lot about is how do I help this customer, not just the customers who are coming through the door and being serviced by Lambda, but all those other people that I'm not able to get to for one reason or another. Got it. Got it. And how about the COVID-19 crisis? You've mentioned that volumes are down and this is this crisis on one and is obviously very challenging for every corporation and definitely for your clients. But on the other end, there's been, at least in the U.S., a very good stimulus package for your target clients, right? So curious to hear how have you navigated this as a company and how has it affected your customers? Yeah, so, you know, it's definitely, I think, when shelter in place was issued in March, right, mid-March, and there's definitely, I would say, a feeling of panic in the industry. I mean, panic may be too strong a word, but definitely a lot of concern, right? This recession hit so hard. It was so deep. It was so instant almost. I mean, I know it was brewing for months, but it felt instant in that moment. Um, and it wasn't clear what's going to happen with the stimulus. I think all lenders kind of had a almost like a flight to safety, right, pulling back on the lending. There definitely was a lot of pressure to seize lending. But what we did was we focused on, you know, we, like I said, have a relationship with our customer. When they need us, we're not going to turn away from them. So we actually kept our doors open for returning customers. And then it was interesting, new customers, anytime there's a credit crisis, right? And it's true across the board, not just for high-risk lenders. It's also for underserved customer lenders or mainstream lenders, right? The first thing they do is, and you even saw it with the PPP loan, the banks said, hey, we want to service our existing customers. We don't want to take on new customers right now because we don't know you. And we don't have the bandwidth right now to think about that. So we're going to limit how many new people we interact with. So that's a similar approach we took in that we kind of slowed down the you know front end. But we didn't have to do a lot, Miguel, because demand just dropped off. You know, I've been on a, I was on a panel last week with a couple of the other companies in the same industry for Lendit. And we all had the same feedback. March, demand just dropped off a cliff because before even the stimulus money came in, customers were like, okay, I'm probably going to lose my job. You know, there's these things I wanted to buy or these things I need to do. I'm just going to hold off on that, right? Day-to-day things I would have done, they said, hey, I'm going to hold off and see what happens. And so we actually saw the demand dropped off. And you can even see there are industry reports that are uh, coming out every every week that show that, especially for 620 and below, demand has stayed down because first the $1,200 check hit home, right? And then the additional federal unemployment stimulus, weekly, in many cases, you know, basically made it so that they had an income. And people aren't commuting, right? You're not eating out. You know, your transportation costs are down to zero. And suddenly people actually saw that the expenses also dropped. And so we have seen that our customers are actually in a good place for now, right? Demand dropped off. We continue to service the customers we have. We even saw returning customers, the pace at which they borrow from us drop off, but that has rebounded. But the point is, and then until like two weeks ago, if you had this podcast two weeks ago, I would have said, hey, I'm still a little nervous to see how August is going to pan out in September because the federal unemployment stimulus expired on, you know, at the end of July. And so it sounds like this, you know, clearly that's happening right now. So I do think that demand will probably stay on the lower end. But then there is at some point the stimulus will start to taper off 
and our customers hopefully have saved enough. But I do expect that demand will start to go up again, probably early part of next year. And thinking about the companies that are handling this COVID crisis well, what do you think they're doing right? And also for those companies that are having a harder time, what could they be doing better? What are they missing? I guess just in the context of financial services, because there's some industries like travel that I don't even know what to say to them. Like, first of all, like you have to be able to get to the other side. So my very first um, meeting, board meeting, you know, post-pandemic, I was asked by my board, so what is your goal, you know, for the year, like through the pandemic, right? And my answer was, I want to get through the pandemic. And that's my goal, right? It's not some fancy, I'm going to reach these heights, or I'm going to hit these numbers, which of course I'm going to, you know, there's a financial plan that I plan to hit. But the reality is that in a pandemic, all bets are off. You haven't had a pandemic for 100 years. There is no playbook, right? There is no playbook. You can't go to a management consultant and say, Tell me how do I navigate this, right? Everyone is in the same boat. So it's not that you have a specific disadvantage as a lender. So for me, it's about, you know, like every other crisis I've had in my life, you cannot say, okay, assess where you are now and figure out what you can do well and the things that you need to figure out how to do. And then you basically start to execute one step at a time. And that's sort of the process I took. Now, I think the companies that are doing well are the ones that are focused on the two things I've said, right? They've kind of focused on how do I help the customer navigate this? And then how do I let my employee navigate this? How do I build flexibility into the schedule? How do I let them know that, you know, this is not normal, right? Being home, blending work, family, being on Zoom calls 10 hours a day, it's not normal. So companies that I think have done well, have kind of focused on both. And I would say to the companies that are struggling is I think that's the basics they have to go back to is assuming you have a product market fit and that you have liquidity to even get through the crisis, right? So the other piece is conserve cash. Coming out of this, right, it's about pulling back on expenses to the extent you can, focusing on the things that matter, which in this case is take care of your employee, take care of your customer, and conserve cash. Those are the three things we need to do in any crisis, but it's especially important now. And speaking of taking care of your employees, how do you think the workplace will look like once we go back to work? Lendup actually made a decision to not go back the rest of the year, right? Because I think when we put employee safety first, I mean, we just cannot guarantee because it's not just about the office space. It's about how is the employee going to get there, right? Are they going to feel pressure to show up because you have now said, hey, it's optional, you can come in. So because we couldn't guarantee employee safety in a pandemic, and that's the most important thing we said, hey, and we are being super productive from home. So we kind of made a decision. We're going to stay home the rest of the year. And I do anticipate the whole world has changed, right? Coming out of this, I do anticipate that there'll be fewer people in the office in general. Maybe a company with, you know, 100 people will have an office for maybe 50, 60 people under some kind of rotation. Or maybe it's going to be distributed offices, you know, like kind of like the, uh, instead of having an office for 100 people, maybe I'm going to have three offices with 20 people each because I'm going to have clusters of employees based on where they're living. And then some portion of the people will just, you know, alternate work from home. So I do think that the reliance on in the office, you know, everybody has to be in the office all the time is going to drastically be different. I mean, at the end of the day, people have shown that we can all be productive. Some of us want to go back to work, right? I have both camps, employees. I would love to be able to go into the office now at least two days a week because I think there is a certain energy you get from being with other people. 
but I think it's going to be somewhat of a blended solution where you try to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah, I agree. And I worry that in a world where not everyone is working remotely, but there is that mix, those who are purely remote, those who decide to be purely remote, they are going to be at a disadvantage, right? And I, I'm not sure how how that work out in, in the future. That definitely used to be the case, right? Because I've felt it myself. Like there was a time when, you know, when I was going through, like I was having my children, there was some portion that I did remote. There's also the fear of myself, right? So it's like, am I missing this meeting? Am I being noticed? Am I going to be less noticed? Do they think I'm not doing my job because I'm not there? I do think that's changed now because, you know, video chats have become so prevalent. But I do think you're right. I think that's something that as companies, we have to think through. How do you create processes in place where you account for that inherent bias that might show up, right? I think it's got to be in how you make decisions on who's getting promoted in performance evaluations. I think goal setting and performance evaluations and then making sure that everybody has equal access to meetings, whether they're remote or not, I think is going to be important. I also think that employees are going to realize going back to work, they're going to realize that in a way you could, you know, I did an article in Wall Street Journal today about how people multitask in the meeting. We've all become more productive because we're trying to do so many things at once. And then when you go back to going back to the office, you realize when I'm at work, I can't be also planning what I'm making for dinner tonight. That's a very good point. Same for classes, actually, at Wharton. You obviously, you're not allowed to be on your phone or a computer uh, during normal classes. But when it's remote, it's a very different story. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about how you envision the future for LendUp. Obviously, we have a cloud of uncertainty for the entire industry these days. But still, like, tell us about you know some of those plans ahead. Yeah, so the thing we're very clear on, right, regardless of what we're going through now is our mission. I mean, we are here. We were created for that mission. We are very committed to that mission of helping people get to better financial health. What I envision with LendUp is a company that has broad reach, both in the U.S. and at some point globally, right? I'm not going to put a timeline on that because I truly believe that I need to, once I get, expand access within the U.S., that'll open up opportunities to figure out how to do it globally. So that's one thing. And two is we are going to look at products beyond just lending. Like to me, financial health, borrowing is just one pillar of that, right? Basically, it's a combination of we have to provide savings opportunities. We have to double down on our financial education. We have to help people plan and budget right, for their expenses. And so to become a true financial services partner to our customers is something that I'm very committed to. And so that's what I see in the future of LendUp is you know, broadening financial access, but in an even deeper way than we do today. Right? To be the full financial service provider for the underserved customer today, that's basically on the fringes of our financial system. So I see more products, a breadth of products, and also larger reach into the U.S. as well as globally. Great. I know we have quite a few listeners who are either aspiring founders, current founders, or also people who are considering leaving maybe the large financial sector and joining fintech startups. You've done it all. You've uh, you've helped launch companies. You've fundraised. You've been in, in large corporations. Now you're leading a mature startup. Maybe you can share some of your reflections of helping launch a company and you know working for a startup that is evolving on a monthly basis. Yeah, you know, 
Like I've just done, you know, almost by happenstance, right? I worked for, I started at Pavilion when they were called First Deposit, right? I was one of 80 exempt employees. When I left nine years later, we had 6,000 employees, right? I worked for National City, which was a hundred some odd year old bank, you know, with 30,000 employees. Then I worked at Account Now, which was 50 people. But, you know, we were delivering on our mission for underserved through a prepaid product. Then I built a business almost from scratch for Blackhawk Network, but I was a one of many business units. And I learned some lessons from that. So I would say that my whole career has been, you know, when an opportunity presents itself, is it aligned with what I want to do? And am I able to do a good job, right? And the third piece is, can I learn from it? Am I learning something new? That's something that's very important to me. So I use those three criteria and I evaluate a job. And what through that experience, what I've done is I've discovered things that I, I didn't even know I could do. I think I mentioned to you before, I joined this seed state startup, pre-seed. You know, we the founder had an idea that he had filed a patent for, but he didn't even have a team. I ended up raising a large portion of the seed round, which I didn't even know I could do, right? Because I had never fundraised before. So part of it, I think my advice to entrepreneurs is figure out what is it that you want to do. Not a financial goal, not a, hey, I want to build a company, I want to sell it in five years, and I want to be a unicorn. Not that, right? Figure out what problem you're trying to solve. What is it that you want to solve in terms of, you know, whether it's an underserved customer or whether it's a, you know, technology solution you want to solve for. Figure out the core problem you want to solve for that you're passionate about. Once you figure out what you're passionate about, then the rest becomes easy, right? Because then work is not really work. Work is something that you're looking forward to. It almost is like a hobby. So I think that's the number one thing. I think a lot of times entrepreneurs, I find that can I get sold on the glamour of a startup, right? Sort of getting the investors to come give you money. But if you're not passionate about the problem you're solving, you're going to kind of, the first time you hit a problem, you're going to struggle. So that's number one. Number two is really, and this is something that I follow and I kind of, you know, fell into it by accident through personal crises, is just be fearless, right? I mean, at the end of the day, failing is okay. It's okay to fail. It's okay to try something and say, I didn't really do that well, but I gave it my best shot. And I think that losing the fear of failure has really what's propelled my success, I would say, in the last 10 years. I think earlier in my career, I had the fear of, if I do this, and then I might not, you know, succeed or I might not get that promotion or my boss might not be happy. And you end up, you know, second guessing your own decisions and then you kind of holding yourself back. About 10, you know, 12 years ago, I realized that I was one of the reasons I was being held back. There were other things for sure. That as a minority woman, there's other things for sure. But one of the factors that was holding me back was me. So once I lost my fear of failure, suddenly I was able to solve problems differently. I was able to, you know, really look at things differently and just tackle problems head on, right? Both in personal life, in my professional life. That's what I try to do. If I see a problem, I say, can I solve it? How do I solve it? Whose help do I need to solve it? Can I get the right people recruited on the team who are going to help me solve it? And before all of that, the question I have answered for myself is, is this the problem I want to solve? And in the case of LendUp, the answer is a resounding yes. And so that's what drives me every single day. Are really, really fascinating. And then if I may add, Anu, I mean, something that I really admire is, you know, the fact that much like me, you came to this country as an immigrant, right? And you've lived the American dream, right? You, you are living it. 
But at the same time, you do recognize that it's not like that for everyone and that it doesn't really work out that way for everyone. And so you're deciding to do something about it. Why do you think you go back to this problem of, of trying to help and trying to become fine, the financial ecosystem in better shape than it is today? I don't know if I can answer the question why. It's more about, look, we all, you know, at the end of our life, because that's for sure, right? When we look back, you want to think about, you know, did I live a productive life? I don't think people are questioning, am I leaving enough money for my kids? Or am I popular? Or am I famous? I think we all have to ask the question, did I live a productive life? Did I do something meaningful that impacted millions of people? That's what gets me excited. I lived the immigrant life for sure, and I still do. Being you know, a student, making a $500 stipend, and getting down to the last 10 bucks for the last four days before you get paid. And I remember going to the ATM to withdraw 10 bucks because that was my money for the whole week. And the bank had taken out $5 of monthly fee. And the, you know, the ATM minimum is 10. At the time it was 10, now I think it's 20. I remember standing there thinking, oh my God, like there's only $5 in my account. The bigger problem was I couldn't get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so to me, those experiences have stuck with me, right? And then when I got to account now and I spent time with customers in person, I actually took a customer, I drove them to a bank to get a second chance account. I drove them to pay bills. I lived in their shoes for a day or two. And I thought, this is what I was going through. But at least I had, I was a student. My hope was I would get a job. And for me, it was a temporary problem. You know, I had a grad student problem. But these customers have no end in sight. And so that really, I remember coming home those two days and really struggling with, I can't believe this is happening and I can't believe people aren't constantly talking about it. When I go to conferences and I tell them what an average American making $45,000 has to do to get a $300 loan, people are shocked. They don't know that happens. And to me, that's what I think at the end of the day gets me to solve this problem. Because I remember the feeling of saying, I really have no one to turn to. I have three days before I get paid again. And here I am in front of this ATM. All I need was like 20 bucks to get through those three days, right? And I had no way to get it. I mean, yes, I could probably call my parents in India, but you know, you don't want to do that, right? It's only 20 bucks. So I think it kind of stuck with me on what it feels like to be almost without any support and no one to turn to. You know, I'm sure you have had this experience of getting your first credit card in the US. It's like a whole saga in itself, right? You have to figure out how to get that first credit card. You get a store card or, you know, and the very first card that I got is still my first card in my wallet. It's that loyalty because 25 years ago, a company said, we'll give you a credit card and I still use that card every day. So I think living that experience drove me and then running into customers who are seemingly middle class, right? Had a home through the crisis, lost the home and a divorce. And suddenly this person is, has a car, doesn't have a home, has a job, but it has no bank account. That to me was eye-opening. And since then, I've kind of said, every job I take, I'm going to evaluate from, does this get me to solve this problem? Or does it take me away from that problem? And if it takes me away from the problem, which I did take a year and a half detour, when I left Blackhawk, I try to come back to, I want to come back to this problem again. Really inspiring. Thank you, Anu. Before we go, I, I always like to 
ask a little bit about your personal side and, and maybe you could tell us how you spend some of your time outside of working hours. I was going to say work, but you know, that's also yeah. your home. So outside of working hours. So a couple of things, you know, I would say stand out to me. One is that I'm an avid cook. You know, I cook Indian food, not surprising, but I do like I'm an avid cook, right? I love to cook for my family. I mean, for a while I was volunteering where I cooked for hundreds of people. This is while I was working full time. So that's something that I do. And second is I'm an avid reader. Sad to say during the pandemic with the work life, even though there's work life balance because you're doing both work and home stuff. There's no balance and that there's no time for me. Sadly, during the pandemic, I haven't read any books, but I like to read, you know, fiction, nonfiction, historical stuff, but also just, you know, I keep up on reading with current events, et cetera. And then during the pandemic, like I just said, I had no breaks between work and home. So I started to walk. So I walk somewhere between five and seven miles a day. And so I kind of tell people I'm a walker and it's just a great way for me to solve problems that are in the back of my mind. I'm walking alone and it comes to the front of my mind. Right? A lot of times I'll come back from a walk and I would have solved the problem that's been like bothering me for weeks around about the business, right? It could be about a hire. It could be about a business problem. It could be about a contract. So I found that giving myself that solitude time where I'm physically active is also helping me become more balanced in terms of how I approach both work and life. I know I'm, I'm sure this episode will inspire a lot of people. It certainly inspired me and I'm thankful and grateful for you joining us. And once things are normal, we would love to see you around campus. That would, I would love that. I've always had a lot of respect for Wharton and I'm just excited to be on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And, you know, people tell me that, you know, like you said, people will be inspired to hear it. The way I look at it, Miguel, is I'm just living life the best way I can with the principles that I've put for myself. And if that inspires people to come along, that makes me happy. But my advice to people is just figure out what you're passionate about and just work hard to get there. Right? And the rest will figure itself out. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Anu. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.